That's a piece called Overseer 2 from the album Surveillance Punishment and the Black Psyche by M. Lamar, who we heard singing, performing alongside the Mivos Quartet. And I know it's a bit weird to open up with the second part of a piece. I'm kind of going out of order with it. I'm going to come back and play the first part later on in the program. But uh, it's such an arresting piece. And so I, I thought it was a really great way to open up the program, get your attention right away, and hopefully. Uh, spark your interest in M's music the way that mine was sparked a couple of months ago when uh, I heard his music for the first time. Welcome to Relevant Tones. I'm Seth Bosted, and I'm really excited to have M. Lamar as my guest on the program today. As I said, I, I came across his music a couple of months ago and was immediately captivated. I certainly know male sopranos. I, I know a lot of artists out there who are interested in some of the same themes, whether that be masculinity, uh, power dynamics, sexuality, African-American spirituals, uh, sort of Afrofuturism, if you will. Uh, some of the things that, that uh, fascinate M. Lamar, but I have never seen all of this in one person before. Uh, and then combine the horror and gothic uh, genre, which he does so well, and this incredible performative aesthetic uh, wow, <laughs> you know, what can I say? So I'm really excited to uh, feature his music on the program today. I'm going to feature two albums on the program today, Funeral, Doom, Spiritual, and then Surveillance, Punishment, and The Black Psyche, and uh, chat with him about them too. So I'll come back to this piece, Overseer, but I'm going to start with Funeral, Doom, Spiritual, and uh, that was the first thing that I asked him about. I was very interested in these um, songs, these spirituals that would happen in, in, in the New Testament, in Revelations, that were about the end of the world. My Lord, when morning is one of those spirituals, when the stars begin to fall, all of these things were sort of about uh, the world ending and that great getting up morning, fare you well, fare you well, was all, all, all of these songs 
are all about this kind of the world ending versus the Old Testament, you know, sort of let my people go when Israel was in Egypt's land, let my people go. That's a, that's a, one thing, you know, about being in bondage, right? But there's a kind of revelatory thing happening in Revelations, which is, you know, we all know Revelations is sort of like this fiery kind of like book of, of the Bible. But I think in the hands of these captured Africans who were in servitude, this was a very exciting moment where these kinds of songs could be uh, about the end of this kind of world in which they were existing. And so the doom, so that's the sort of my basic idea is to try to sort of, you know, rather than sort of singing My Little Wood in Morning in this very lovely way that Marian Anderson would sing it, but I, I adore that. I mean, I, and I, honestly, none of us can really sing that spiritual way Marian Anderson sings it. Um, I was thinking that wouldn't it be wonderful if we had these very doomy kinds of settings? Well, it's the same kind of melody, hopefully lovely, a lovely, you know, sort of rendition of the melody, but then the setting could be something more destructive, something more reflecting this, this um, kind of apocalypse. You're a singer as well as a composer. Uh, what, what comes first for you? I mean, do you start singing the words or, or what is the process behind something like this when you're creating something like Funeral Doom Spiritual? I work out usually the sort of the theatrical part and, and sometimes the libretto with uh, this guy named Tucker Culbertson. This is a very complicated person, Tucker. He's one of my best friends and he's brilliant and complicated. And so anyway, he sort of started working with me on staging these pieces, not so much directing them, but sort of staging them. It was a very collaborative thing. And so then we started working on librettos together. And so at the time he was a, a professor at, um, of law, constitutional law at Syracuse University. And so I went there, maybe this was, in the fall of 2015 and we sort of like had these boards like sort of like these boards that we'd write things on like for the libretto so we were like okay so we're, we're talking about a city in paris burning we're talking about uh the world ending we're talking about Antimir rice we're talking about mike brown we're talking about a way to try to sort of grapple with that that um unspeakable kind of uh grief mourning trauma uh, what do we do with that? And then my work had, um, sort of, to that point had always been sort of staged in the past, like it was like 1947 or on a plantation or on a slave ship. In this instance, we wanted to sort of imagine what a hundred years from now would look like. And so, um, so Fino Doom is spiritual is technically based in the future. And, and the idea is that there is this person who lost um, their most beloved, like someone, a figure like Tamir Rice or, excuse me, or Mike Brown or Emmett Till even, and they had, um, were convinced that they could not, they could not go on until that beloved would come back to life. Or like, the, I'm like, a lot of times I might be interested in other music, like sort of trying to rip something off, like, oh, this Strauss song has this really great thing that I really want to borrow. Or like, this like, you know, Schubert thing has this thing I want to buy. I mean, I, you know, we all rip things off. Um, so, it, but that usually, that usually ends up being a part of, like a, a bigger piece. It's not like the impetus for an entire piece. Like that might be like a, you know, sort of some kind of like light motif or something in the middle of a bigger piece, like ripping off some, some, <laughs> some other composer, some dead white composer usually. Um, but I also love, I mean, I love Negro spirituals though. I mean, that's like a, that's the center of a lot of what I do. Um, just the way that those songs work. Um, and the, that they, I'm very interested in how they existed you know, for like, I don't know, 200 or so years before they were ever written down, like it's just oral tradition. It's pretty fascinating to me. Like, I think like, how is it that these songs, I mean, obviously they would change over time and they would like evolve through this kind of natural performance of them before they were kind of like written down or notated. And that's fascinating to me. Like, I'm, I'm endlessly 
curious about that. Yeah, I usually I sing. There's some spiritual I sing every day. Usually, oh, freedom is what I've been singing a lot lately. But um, there's some spiritual that I'm usually singing. You know, every day for whatever reason. Like you know, if I maybe I'm curious about the melody or how the melody works or or just the feeling it gives me emotionally. I mean, I might just need that on an emotional level. You know, like um, it's been difficult times. You know, rough times. Let's hear a piece from this album, Funeral Doom Spiritual. This is my, well, I like the whole album, but this piece really speaks to me. This, this is my favorite, I think, uh, although I kind of go back and forth, but this is my favorite. Uh, it's called Carrying, and uh, we'll hear M. Lamar, of course, and it also features Matthew Robinson.
I have a question for you. So uh, you, know, you, have, yes. you have a background in, in visual arts, sculpture. When did you start yes. to realize, though, that you were a, not, not just a musician, but a performer, particularly? Um, gosh, I mean, I was always doing, like when I was in art school, I was always, well, I was saying, my God, everyone who went to art school with me knows that I just was singing constantly. Like that was, that was, I mean, my obsession with singing, like I used to work in maintenance for all, so my first two years, the Art Institute in College, I got from Alabama and I, you know, go from Alabama. And, I, and so my work study jobs were, I worked in maintenance for two years and then I worked in the library and there was a gallery on campus I worked in, but I, and those were later, maybe my junior, senior year, but the first two years I was working in maintenance. I was like, I would get there at like five or six in the morning and I'd like start sweeping and mopping like the studios and various places. And I was thinking the whole time, which is just such a cliche, like a black person cleaning and singing. It was just, anyway, as I think about it now, I'm just like, it's a horrible, but I, but everyone knew that like, so, I mean, my obsession with singing, you know, and I was usually like singing along to like, maybe I was listening to like Jesse Norman or something. Saying, and I was like singing along to some Strauss song or Mahler or something. Um, but performing, I mean, cause then I sort of started performing when I was doing undergraduate work. And then I would kind of like, then I started doing like sort of nightclub-y things where like I had a track and I'd be singing along to it. I don't know, it happened somewhere when I was at Yale. Like I was, I, so I was doing a little stuff like in San Francisco. Then when I went to Yale, um, I was coming to New York a lot. Uh, like I would be in New Haven for like three days a week and then I would come down to New York because there was just so many things to get into. <laughs> if you're like, you know, 20 years old in New York, you know, um, so I was very, and so I, I think there was like some weird contest where they were looking for like some like rocker person or whatever. So initially, I, there was a clubhouse, yeah, there was a clubhouse squeeze box at the time in New York. And so, like, there was a, so I think I was singing some Led Zeppelin song, but very operatically, like, sort of, some kind of cross between, like, Jesse Norman and Diamond the God singing a Led Zeppelin song. Anyway, I, so I had this track, and I was singing to it, and I sort of won this weird contest thing or whatever, but then that sort of led to, there's this live band thing happening at this place called Squeezebox, so then I, like, started doing gigs there. So I was at Yale, and then I would come down and do these gigs at, like, Squeezebox all the time, and then I led to other gigs. So I think, I think the, the bug kind of, like where it was just like, oh, I really, this is the thing I really want to do. Like, um, sort of started there. And then I like ended up dropping out of Yale and then going back to San Francisco and then like starting these bands. But then at the same time, I started these rock bands. I was like studying music theory and piano and had, like, you know, an opera teacher uh, in San Francisco. Because uh, I was always very interested in, like at the time when I was doing these bands, I was very interested in like this very like operatic soprano kind of sound um, against this kind of electric, these electric guitar things. Um, so yeah, so the, I, I think somewhere along there, I just, it, you know, became this drug of like needing to be in front of an audience, like singing. But the singing has just always been a thing. Like I've always just been singing. Like I, I like it's, like that's just like a very old thing that I've always sort of done. But the, the, but that's different than performing. Like I, I appreciate the question because knowing that you love to sing and that you're obsessively are doing that uh, and performing are very different things. So um. Yeah, I mean, I just, it just was like it became a thing. And then I, I knew that I had a lot to say um, in terms of ideas, like with when I was doing visual art. And so when I, one of the first songs I wrote as, as a part of the band, one of the bands I was in was this thing called Plantation Mistress, which is sort of this horror, it was like a horror kind of, like about like these gray brothing negresses who like want to like hold the heads of these plantation mistresses. So I knew there was this um, sort of horror or like race, like like B movie thing that I wanted to sort of sing these very operatic 
forgot like <laughs> like no, like like Schubert's like the you know Eric Clarnish and Death in the Maiden really big deal. So you didn't you know, have this you know like idea in, in Death in the Maiden or, or in Eric Clarnish. You have like these four different voices. And like, this very soprano kind of voice and this kind of like lower kind of sound. Like I I love the horror of all that. I was working with that sort of idea, but with this like anyway with all this like weird race B movie race stuff, uh, which is just really I don't know. It was just like I was like yeah why this whole horror thing like. Like there's so much horror related to race, and this is like you know, like this is way before Jordan Peele was all like doing Get Out and all these kinds of like. There's a new kind of interest that like sort of black culture has in horror that like, but it, this is like this is for me like listening to the Misfits, you know, like and all that kind of horror kind of aesthetic. Um, I was like, why? There's all this like race stuff that seems really like applicable to this horror aesthetic and so. Um, and then it, it seemed like you know, like there was a, a combination of like you know Pasolini, you know, and Salo with like Schubert with like this sort of B-movie thing and like kind of metal, black metal stuff um, that just seemed to like be like, yeah, of course. <laughs> of course this is a thing, you know, or should be a thing. <laughs> I love that. Um, okay, let's return to this album, Funeral, Doom, Spiritual, and we're going to hear a piece called Remembrance. <laughs> Peace is 
I also think, you know, there's this outsider tradition in the art world that doesn't exist in classical music, but people like you are crashing through and making it exist, which is awesome, you know? I mean, because I always was jealous of art people that, you know, there is no, you don't, you don't get a doctorate in painting, you know, to be a, an artist per se. I mean, some people do, but... Well, you get an MFA in painting. Like, I, mean, I was in, when I was at Yale, I was in the MFA program at Yale. So I went to, did my undergraduate in San Francisco to Art Institute there, and then I went to graduate school at Yale. So you get an MFA, you can get a PhD in like art history, but not like studio art. Like studio art is like a, usually those are two year programs, and you get your MFA, and then you, I don't know, get a job as a waiter. <laughs> you have the MFA in art. Um, I don't know what you really do with that, that degree. Yeah, no, I mean, it's really, um, I think that I have an advantage in a way in terms of like, um, like, I think that because I think that when you go to art school, you're like, they're training you about how to work as an artist and how to sort of develop work. Like, really, if, if I could take anything away from that kind of experience, and I went to a fine high school, too, so I like had this, like, you know, a high school with, like, sort of four years of that kind of training, and then I had a, you know, a, a undergraduate, you know, college thing, and then a year of graduate school. Plus, like, other, I mean, I had a lot of their training about, like, the process of being an artist, you know, and that, I think I have an unfair advantage for, in terms of other composers, because I think I'm really good at, like, that part of art making, like, the sort of process of working through things, where I don't know if composers have that same kind of, well, I also think that there's this question of voice, because the question of, of what, who, what is your voice is the central question in um in art making in visual art making like who are you what is your voice that's not so much the central question from what i've seen at least in conservatories when you're a classical musician or composer maybe if you're studying composition exclusively maybe they're talking to you about like well what is your where do you fit in like what do you have to say versus the history of you know the particular kind of music you're involved in whether you're studying jazz contemporary jazz or contemporary classical music or, i mean like what is your i mean that's the whole gig with like art school and, and even um, here, you know, like you mentioned Tristan and Isolde, I mean, in classical music uh, history, you know, when that prelude came out, I mean, people were, everybody in Europe was talking about whether they loved it or hated it. And, you know, and that just yeah. doesn't happen like that anymore, you know, to that I extent. Know. Yeah. That music holds up so well. I mean, like, I, it's just so, I listen to it all the time. I mean, it, it, I have to get ready. Sometimes I'll, I put it on the, the Liebestone, you know, I, I, I once put it on casually. Oh, I'm just going to put this on and I started doing something. And then all of a sudden, I just, all this swells happened and I was just in tears. And I was like, I can't, I can't do, yeah. this is not a casual, I can't just right, put right. this on. You know, like I have to be ready. I have to get myself ready <laughs> to go through everything that music is going to put me through. But that is, yeah. but what a wonderful, fantastic thing though, that, that a piece of music can just like just do that. I mean, this is what, I don't know. This, this is what we're all trying to, I would think this is what we're all trying to do. To make something that can be so impactful. 
I opened the program with Overseer Part 2 from Surveillance, Punishment, and the Black Psyche. Let's hear now Overseer uh, Part 1. This is featuring Bryce Hackbird. Take from all the other slaves. 
Valence Punch and Black Psyche is an example of what I was talking about before, where a piece um, would be based uh, in the past. Like Funeral Doom is, we're talking like 100 years in the, into the future. Um, Surveillance Punch and the Black Psyche is loosely based on the story of Willie Francis. And Willie Francis was um, a Black child, a Black boy child, um, who was executed twice in 1946 and 1947 in St. Martinsville, Louisiana. Very loosely based. It's not really, it's not a proper. I mean, it's, it's because I'd already sort of started writing the piece before. This is another, this is where my collaborator again, Sucker Culbertson kind of comes in. And I'm sort of talking about, I'm almost talking in a very theoretical way about like sort of trying to blend like sort of like Franz Fanon's kinds of ideas about internalized racism with like Foucault's ideas about, you know, the, the prison um, and this kind of panopticon thing, uh, sort of blending those ideas, you know, like like did it that you know within a racialized context, the, the you're kind of surveilling yourself within uh, a white supremacist context. If you are a black person, sort of the way that the voice talks about double consciousness, like you are very aware of your consciousness as a black person, as well as the consciousness of the broader culture, which is a white one. So there, there's always kind of a duality happening. Um, if you were black, anyway. So I was kind of like in very, in these very kind of theoretical terms, and I kind of started writing the piece, and then I was like, and I was, I was also like very interested in trying to figure out a way to talk about homosexuality on plantations. You know, there's a book called Delectable Negro, which is like maybe the best kind of in, in research on that subject. It's not really a thing that we know much about. Um, I mean, I think that we know much more about the kind of rape of black women on plantations, and less about the rape of black men. Uh, of course, we have the product of so many of those rapes were the, the children. Um, so I think so there was, it was a, a lot of it was my imagining, trying to sort of imagine what that dynamic was. And then again, my, um, my collaborator Tucker was like, well, do you know the story of Willie Francis? And I was like, no. And so then I immediately Googled him and like sort of tried to figure out everything I could find out about him. And I was like, huh, this is interesting. Um, so Willie Francis was, um, at the time he was finally killed was 17, but I think the person they tried to kill him, he was 16. Uh, and so the electric chair, I say uh, he was ex executed twice because the electric chair did not work uh, the first time because the person, it was an electric chair that traveled throughout various Southern cities. And the person who was installing the electric chair was inebriated, was drunk. And so it wasn't properly installed. And so Willie Francis got all these bolts of electricity, but did not die. And so this actually went to the Supreme Court. This was like a you know, like the Supreme Court were like, oh yeah, sure, you can like, because it was a question of cruel and unusual punishment, right? Um, can you um, execute someone twice? Does this go beyond the Constitution's, you know, sort of like mandate about cruel and unusual punishment? And they were like, oh yeah, it's fine. Go ahead and kill him again. So, but in that year, 
um, when they were trying to sort of kill him, all these sort of like civil rights people descended on St. Martinsville, Louisiana and started actually for the first time asking him questions. Well, did you do it? Uh, What's your relationship to this man you're accused of killing? And it turns out that uh, Willie Francis was engaged in some sort of sexual relationship with the 53-year-old man pharmacist uh, whom he was accused of murdering. From Surveillance Punishment and the Black Psyche, here is Young Boys Dying Then and Now. Thank you. 
Thank you.
This is Unloved and Unwanted, and I forgot to mention before that, uh, again, this, this album features the Mivos Quartet in addition to M. Lamar. music from this, uh, this really striking album, Surveillance, Punishment, and the Black Psyche. Uh, it was such a pleasure to have M. Lamar on the show, and uh, I hope you'll check out more of his music. Uh, we had so much more that we talked about that I just couldn't include in the show. 
Uh, absolutely a fascinating musician, fascinating human being and, and thinker, and uh, really, really fantastic to have him on the program. So uh, do check out more M. Lamar, and, and hopefully he'll be able to start touring again soon. I promised I'd go out with a live track, and uh, I think this one is, uh, well, the live version of Carrying is, is, is uh, really quite amazing too, but I'm going to go with O Graveyard. I just feel like this kind of sums up uh, M. Lamar's aesthetic in, in so many respects. So I hope you enjoy. For Relevant Tones, I'm Seth Bosted. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you.